First came the Australian giants, Lou Hode, Ken Rosewall, Roy Emerson, Margaret Court and Rod Laver. Then the electricity of Chris Evert and Martina Navratilova, the athleticism and power of Pete Sampras, Steffi Graf and their countless rivals before the entrance of Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic and Serena Williams, who together took title-winning standards and expectations to a whole new level. This year, Djokovic, he's achieved a feat many considered out of reach by equaling Margaret Court's record 24 singles major titles. But does silverware alone define greatness or are there other factors at play when we go in search of the GOAT, the greatest of all time? How should the greatest be judged? Success? Substance? Style? Celebrity? I'm Seb Lozier, and joining me to answer these burning questions across a two-part special are esteemed tennis journalist and author of biographies on both Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic, Chris Bowers, and WTA player-turned-tennis commentator and reporter Jill Krabus. First of all, great to have you both here on the line. Jill, I'll come to you first just briefly. How are you? Well? I'm very good. Yes, thank you. It's great to be here. Always nice to be with you guys once again. Yeah, but really nice to be able to congregate once again in December at the end of the year. Yeah, it'll be a lot warmer where you are than, than where I think Chris <laughs> and I are. But Chris, how, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Um, and this is one of those discussions which uh, is a hostage to fortune because whoever you like, if we don't put them top, I'm sure you'll feel offended, but please don't. This is just about whether there is more to greatness than just the the number of titles. And that's why, I mean, a, a lot of people who are uh, looking solely at the numbers will say, oh, but it's got to be Djokovic. And yes, if you're looking at successful players, I think it does. But this discussion, and you, you set it up very well there, Seb, it's about whether there is more to greatness than just the numbers. Yeah, we will come on to all of that. Throughout the pod, we'll also hear from a selection of players, coaches and analysts. Everyone, of course, has a view on this. So before we hear from Chris and Jill some more, let's start with the thoughts of Brad Stein, former coach of Jim Courier, now with Tommy Paul as he scales the rankings faster and faster, it seems. Recently retired player Jeremy Shardy and first of all, Roger Federer's former coach, Ivan Lubacic, who loves detail, and he honed straight in on the numbers. I think the most successful one is is definitely uh, Novak, uh, at least on the male side. Uh, and he keeps winning; he's not stopping. And uh, I'm I'm really curious, and I would love to see Rafa back in 2024 to give him some uh, some heat, just to to start uh, to, to, to keep, so we keep talking about it, right? Um, but uh, yeah, I mean Novak is 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 incredible. I mean, when you look at the way he play, he's playing now, and you look at you know ten years ago, you see the same person, which is remarkable, uh, knowing how old he is. It's not a really good question. <laughs> Sorry to say, <laughs> because uh, it is a topic of discussion. Though. Yeah, like I always think, like people always want to. We need to, to know, know the uh, expert opinion from yeah, you. Yeah, everybody want to know who is the best, but. Uh, I think at, at their peak they were all the best. Yeah. And uh, what I think is uh, the most important with, between those three players is because of them pushing each other, they improve so much, they they get to to a level like not one other player are close to have. 
Novak right now stands above everybody else. He's got the best winning record over his peers. He owns the most major titles in the history of the game. Um, and so for me, there's, there's no question anymore as to who the, who the greatest player of all time is. It's, it's Novak Djokovic, and we're lucky. And again, you know, that he's still, he's still competing. He's still out there. People get to watch him play. We all get to, to be around him and see him, whether it's on the practice court for us sometimes or, or in matches. Um, but he's, he's a great champion, and he deserves the moniker of GOAT. So. If we're splitting our debate into four, let's call them broad topics, success, which is obviously the numbers, substance, which is kind of the consistency and dominance and mentality, style, which is self-explanatory, and celebrity, which are all those things that go kind of above and beyond um, the court. Let's talk first about success and the simple numbers. Chris, you've written tomes on this um you have also a mind-boggling algorithm which maybe we'll come on to uh in the in this episode or maybe the next episode but how do the numbers stack up for you first well i think in in terms of numbers you have to go with novak djokovic certainly in terms of grand slam singles titles the big question then is is there more than Grand Slam singles titles? Djokovic has 24, Nadal 22, Federer 20. The next one down is Pete Sampras, who was thought of as the greatest of all time in his era, with 14. When he beat Roy Emerson's record back in 2000, it seemed a, a massive achievement. And everyone assumed that Margaret Court's record of 24, many of which, in fact, more than half of which were in, in the days before tennis went professional, um, that that would... Uh, never be beaten but actually it's been equaled and maybe beaten next year by Djokovic the question then is though do you add other things do you add doubles titles I mean uh, Martina Navratilova and Margaret Court have well Navratilova has 41 doubles titles 31 women's doubles 10 mixed Court has 40 21 mixed 19 women's doubles titles and and to put it on to back to the men where does this leave someone like John McEnroe or even John Newcomb for that matter Newcomb won 27 Grand Slam titles but only seven were in singles he won 17 men's doubles titles and three mixed McEnroe won 11 um, men's doubles titles, one mixed alongside his seven uh, Grand Slam singles titles. Now, seven Grand Slam singles titles across just two of the four majors may seem nothing compared with Djokovic's 24. But are we writing off doubles completely? What about tour titles? Connors, 109, still ahead of the list. Federer, 103, Djokovic rapidly catching up. Um, what about weeks at number one? That's where Djokovic does top uh, the rankings but um, there's all sorts of, even if one limits it to numerical achievements, is it only Grand Slam singles titles? If it is, then Djokovic, by winning 24 in the most competitive era in tennis, has to be up there. But um, to me, I wouldn't want to discard doubles completely. And Jill, I mean, Serena Williams looms large in all of this too. And not, not that you'll want to talk just about the women's game, but I mean, she she is has an incredible feat of, a, of achievement 23 singles Grand Slam titles, 14 Grand Slam doubles titles. She's won the Olympics, which some of these top three, some of the big three, let's face it, haven't done. She's won three doubles Olympics titles. Where does where does Serena for you um, sit in all of this? She's she's definitely at the top of the list, and I think Chris makes a good point of maybe incorporating the doubles into the category a little bit more. I think. 
with the men in particular, I think they didn't that if you talk about the top three, Federer at all and Djokovic, they didn't really play doubles that often. So I think if they did, that probably would have been the, a lot more numbers in their category as well. But if we're talking about numbers, yes, I mean, so, uh, Serena definitely is one of the best, the highest probably in that category, along with Margaret Court, obviously having 24 Grand Slam titles. But you, you, you not only talk about the num- numbers, but the substance of celebrity. I mean, I think Serena is one of those that transcended all of that, right? I mean, went beyond sport. Even if you didn't watch tennis, people knew who she was. And that's something I know we're going to get into talking about a little bit later, but that's something that you have to, to factor in is people know who she is, no matter if you're a sports fan or not. And that's that's a big deal. So for me, that's that's what makes her one of the best in the world. Chris, how should we wait the open era, so the the modern professional era, against what came before it. How how can we do that? Yeah, that's very difficult, and it makes actually working out the greatest of all time incredibly difficult because we had this sort of forty year freak period in tennis where the best in the world didn't really compete in the most prestigious tournaments. Really, from the late nineteen twenties until tennis went open in April nineteen sixty eight. There were the split amateur and professional circuits. The only way we can really look at trying to equate them is to look at the results in 1968, because when the professionals came back to play the prestigious tournaments, by and large, they beat the amateurs. It was newsworthy when the amateurs beat the professionals. But the problem is that the professionals, if we say that they were the best, they weren't winning the prestigious tournaments because they just weren't allowed to. It seems a bizarre state of affairs now. But tennis was thought of as, you know, the the integrity of tennis was it was an amateur sport. So if you wanted to earn your living, well, you weren't a proper tennis player. Seems weird. And Jill, j- just interesting to get your opinion on this as a a former player. Um, how important is your record over your peers in all of this you know if if someone's numbers are great but actually they didn't do well against their key rivals how much does that detract in your opinion i think it is a factor i think if you talk to any of the top players that those numbers end up being historical for them it it comes down to having not only the grand slam titles the total number of for the men masters 1000 titles um and I think for the for those guys that is a huge factor, and I mean we mentioned, you know, if you go to numbers, Djokovic has has the best numbers, but he also has, you know, the win record over Nadal and Federer as well. And I think a lot of a lot of players and coaches and a lot of fans put put that a big factor into what makes him the the best in a lot of people's minds. It's a very interesting point, actually, because we don't tend to put enough weight, in my view, on head to head in in general tennis, how two games match up. And in a way, if you see two players who are roughly the same, you say, OK, fine. So they're roughly the same and they go out on a, on a given day. One can be better than the other. But look at someone like Federer and Nadal. Even at Federer's peak, he struggled to beat Nadal. And yet, you know, his his record speaks for itself. And yet... It was only in about 2017 when he came back after that six months that he really had Nadal's number and he beat him, I think, four times out of five um, after that comeback. It was it was just a remarkable state of affairs. And it, I find it hard to know how much to read into that because I wouldn't want to say, oh, well, Nadal's a better player than Federer as a result of it. And yet when Federer struggles to beat Nadal, but 
you know, certainly in the early part of his career, was trouncing everybody else. Well, maybe it does count for something. And having said that, it's I think that's tough because the head-to-head records are very, very close. It's not like it outstandingly favors Djokovic. There's very little margin between the two. So that's where it comes down to something that you can't really quantify was the mental toughness. Chris, you had written that in that paper about mentality that it's just hard to factor that in sometimes. And so it is close. I mean, it comes down to such small margins, as we know. The numbers in in many ways are the most objective way of, of looking at this, aren't they? And, and if we get into sort of the substance, and by that I mean the consistency, the dominance, the mentality, that, that's almost where we we start to tug away at the, in, the intangibles, isn't it? Um, and let's hear from the Netherlands Davis Cup captain, Paul Harhus, because for him, and we've just been talking about Rafael Nadal, for him, Rafael Nadal's consistency stands out. If you compare to Federer, who's so flawless and so easy, how he can hit those strokes, and Nadal had to work so much harder for it, that it's so unbelievable nice to see that somebody who has to, in my, my opinion, work harder for it, does it all the time and all those years I mean it's mind-boggling how many years was this guy top 10 before he fell out I mean I mean some players hope to once get in their lifetime a week in the top 10 and I think he did it 15 years in a row or even longer 15 years in a row without being out of the top 10 that's just mind-blowing Jill Paul Harhu's saying then he, well he finishes on you know mentioning the fact that Rafa just 15 years in a row inside the top 10 is just a phenomenal achievement in itself um how important is that for you winning over a, an extremely long period of time a little bit like Connors did as well yeah it's massive I mean we talk about consistency all the time and it is that is an, an incredible feat and I think also is his point with his that he was making, you could add into that the dominance that he had on the clay, obviously 14 Roland Garros titles. I mean, that, that's absolutely insane. And I think this is why we're ha- part of the reason we're having this discussion about the GOAT is it's so hard to determine because you could argue that Nadal was the master in the GOAT category at Roland Garros on the clay surface with also how many Monte Carlo titles that he has. And it's just absolutely phenomenal. And I think that's why in so many people's minds, he's probably the one that you would put in the number one category as far as the GOAT, because that's an incredible feat to be able to accomplish. But that that consistency is so important, especially with the way Nadal plays too, with how physical he is, to be able to sustain that over the course of all of those years with how demanding the style of tennis that he plays on his body and to be able to continue to perform the way he performed with all that grit and heart and and over the course of the years is just spectacular. But that's one of the things I found fascinating about what Paul Harhouse was saying is that he was saying he likes to see the hard work. And I wonder whether actually because Federer made it look so easy, he is slightly underestimated. Um, I hadn't thought about that until Paul mentioned it. Does the fact that Nadal dominated, and let's face it, he will probably go to his grave as the king of clay, um, even previous kings of clay like Thomas Muster call him the king of clay, does that go in his favour or does it slightly go against him, the fact that his dominance came more on one surface than the other three? I think if you look at uh, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, they all had one major, which they won a lot more of. Uh, Federer won more Wimbledons than anything else. Nadal won more Roland Garros's than anyone else, um, than any of the, the other three. Um, and, and Djokovic has done best in Australia. 
uh, I don't think that diminishes them as long as their haul on the other three slams is good. This is where I think Nadal does lose out a little bit because he hasn't done as well at the other three, um, especially at Wimbledon where he's just won the two. But uh, I don't know. I mean, we're, we're splitting hairs here. I mean, those three are just so phenomenal that um, we're looking at ways of dividing them rather than appreciating what they did. I think it's tough because when I think about Nadal, you were saying, you know, I definitely agree with Chris. It doesn't diminish that at all. But what a story that impressed me about Nadal is, you know, he understood that he was the best on the clay and he understood he had to make some adjustments to the other surfaces, which he did it phenomenally well. But I remember one year at Wimbledon, he knew he wasn't, he hadn't won a Wimbledon title yet. He knew he wasn't, and he knew it wasn't his best surface. And I just remember being at the practice courts at Orangi and I was still playing at the time. And he just picked up a chair, sat right in front of the practice court watching Federer and just sat there watching Federer's practice, trying to learn how to play on the surface of the grass surface to get better. And, you know, just having that, I mean, obviously he has that awareness and understanding, but just wanting to learn from the best. And I think what those, that's what those three guys did so well. They all had different styles which I think pushed them to be better players. And I think they all had an understanding and awareness of that. But to be at the top of the game like Nadal and to be aware I'm, I need to learn from Federer, one of his biggest rivals, to me that's incredible having that mentality. Yeah, and I think in some ways that Wimbledon was Nadal's greatest achievement because he, he grew up on clay. Um, he said the adjustment to grass was easier because his feet felt good under him because he could slide a little bit. That's why he never particularly liked hard. But for me, his game, uh, having grown up on the clay, was always going to be well suited to hard. And those two Wimbledon titles, especially the second one where he was so dominant, I, I think that's almost the biggest achievement, even though it's his lowest achieving slam in terms of numbers. It's not just about winning over a long period of time, is it? Craig O'Shaughnessy is a top data analyst in tennis and worked actually as part of Team Djokovic. For him, greatness is also about dominating at certain points in your career. My goodness, you know, Roger Federer in 2005 to 2008 was unstoppable. When you go back and remember that time, um, he was doing things on a tennis court we'd never, ever seen. Rafa... Um, periods of time on clay, unstoppable. Novak now, you know, essentially 36-year-old, but certainly from an analytical standpoint and a tournament victory standpoint, unstoppable. Let's celebrate those three. And we've now got Carlos, who's doing all the right things at, at, at this age, that he may come and catch them, and he may even beat them as well. Chris, let's talk about moments in time because there have been moments where certain players, and we can talk about the, the top, the, the big three, but you know we can talk about other players as well. We can talk about Serena Williams for sure, um, where they've simply been unbeatable. Um, how important is that in all of this? I think it is important, but because we can say it about Sampras, we can say it about Borg in the late 70s, we can say it about Connors in the mid 70s, Lever in the late 60s, you know, that means that we are looking for how long does that period last? How 
long can they sustain it? And that's where, for me, longevity does play a role. And that's why I think um, Craig O'Shaughnessy is a little uh, ahead of the game by suggesting that Carlos Alcaraz might catch uh, Federer and Nadal Djokovic. I mean, I think we've because we've had it in the last 10, 12 years that these guys have won so many, we forget just how amazing it is to get into double figures in terms of winning Grand Slams. You know, Borg won 11, Lever won 11, Emerson 12. Um, it, it, it's very, very rare. So, yes, Alcaraz, I think, has done extremely well to win two majors at this stage in his career. And he may well go on to win a lot more. But whether he'll get up to 20, I mean, let, let's not... Um, assume that because we've seen three players get to 20 or more in the last few years, that somehow it's it's normal. It isn't. It's phenomenal. The tennis that Federer was playing, Jill, in, you know, over three years, probably 2005, 2008, which was pretty phenomenal. Did he, in your memory, ever do what Novak Djokovic did, which was, for example, win the first 43 matches of the year in 2011. I can't remember Roger Federer even ever doing that. And it was actually Federer who beat him in the semi-final of the French that year. And it was the first loss Djokovic lost that year. On the way, he beat Nadal four times, twice on clay. He beat Federer, I think, three times, Murray twice. I mean, all three of them, obviously, all four of them playing great tennis. Djokovic, just when he when he's on it... And still, we can still say it today, can't we? But and when he's on it, he just seems simply unbeatable. He does, yeah. And I know, I know it's it's incredible what he's continuing to do in mid, in his mid thirties, especially with these young guys coming up like an Alcaraz and a center and Runa as well. Just being able to push him just a little bit. But I think I almost feel like that's what Djokovic needs. He needs that push. It was exactly what happened when he came up on the scene when Federer and Nadal were doing so well. And it put the the fact that Federer had that you know had those years going where he was so consistent and Nadal as well. I almost feel like it it helped Djokovic's mentality to be able to push himself to get to that point where he had that winning streak going, because I you you need those you know you need those idols and those rivals to be able to keep that motivation going. And I think that's one of the biggest things when we talk about uh, Djokovic is how incredible it is that he still has this level of motivation after so many years to be able to push himself and want to get better. And I know he loves it and he has the passion and wants the numbers, but it, it's not it's not that easy to do when you've already been on the tour for so many years to keep that intensity the way he is able to keep it but it's because he had those guys that he that pushed him and now he has Alcaraz the center of the runa that is still pushing him because these young guns are coming up and getting better and better um and those numbers you know just just make you want more and I think it's important that he has these young guys that are pushing him I think Seb also that the numbers I mean you're right. Uh, Federer and Nadal didn't have anything like the streak that Djokovic had at the start of 2011. That was a phenomenal streak. But um, Federer's peak years were actually 04 to 07. Uh, at the beginning of 08, he had mononucleosis and only won the US Open that year. But from the start of 04 to the end of 07, there were 16 Grand Slams played. Federer won 11 of them, which is just remarkable. And in fact, um, you know, in, in 85, when he lost in the semis of the Australian Open and ended up winning only, in inverted commas, two slams, 
if he'd won the uh, ATP finals, he would have had exactly the same record as McEnroe had in 1984, which was 85 matches played, 82-1. He ended up with 85 played, 81-1 in the year he only won two slams. So you can find numbers for Federer. And the number that I find most impressive about Federer, he had 23 successive Grand Slam semifinals and 36 successive Grand Slam quarterfinals. So it... it I suppose this is what the politicians do. They find the numbers from wherever they want to make the point they want. Um, but you can do it for all three. It is incredible. If we if we say that Djokovic has been incredibly good at sort of resetting his horizons when he's maybe lacked a little bit of motivation. Like, Jill, do you remember when he, he did go through a little bit of a lean patch, maybe six, five or six years ago, and he parted company with Marion Vider, who'd been his longtime coach, and he'd done, I think, the career slam, and he'd struggled. He seemed to struggle for motivation after that, and he kind of reinvented himself a little bit. He went in search of new inputs and a new coach, um, even worked with Craig as an analyst for a while. Did Federer or Nadal ever have to reinvent themselves like that? Other than for injury, did they ever have to go back to the well and sort of go, what am I all about here? Yeah, definitely. I think they always have. I think that's what makes them so great is they're always trying to reinvent themselves and get better. And I remember that time with Djokovic. I think he had problems with his elbow as well. Um, so it it was some injuries that can not only, you know, make you take time off, but it can affect you mentally as well because you start to wonder, okay, am I going to recover from this? And that can take a toll sometimes on everyone. We we saw it with Nadal's knees and now his foot Federer with his knees as well. But I think that's what makes them so great and have been able to keep them at the top for so long is they they are never not trying to improve and progress and get better. I mean, I remember Nadal when he was number one in the world, all of a sudden he decided to completely work on his serve and change his serve. I mean, his serve was not hurting him that much, but he he knows that if you ever find yourself stalling at any point that can get you into trouble because there's always going to be someone that's going to want to surpass you. And they have that understanding. And so if there's ever a moment where they stop improving and progressing, they could get into trouble. And so they are always consistently trying to reinvent themselves. It's a good point about reinventing yourself, actually, because, uh, yeah, Nadal did it, I think, after 2011, when he lost an awful lot to Djokovic, not just the slams, but I think he lost four successive Masters 1000 finals to uh, Djokovic. And he just decided he had to play closer to the baseline. And so he worked on that. And it's, if you look at the Nadal-Djokovic head-to-head in 2012 and 2013, that showed just how much Nadal did reinvent himself because he just knew he couldn't play, certainly on hard courts, anything like as far back in the court. Federer reinvented himself twice, I think. Once after the mononucleosis in early 08, when he also had that awful French Open final where he was crushed by Nadal and then lost the Wimbledon final in the darkness. But I think the Olympic gold medal in doubles that summer just reinvented Federer almost for him. And the other time was when he took those six months off at the end of when he had the knee injury at Wimbledon in 2016 and came back with that just phenomenal fairy tale Australian Open win in 2017. But yes, reinventing themselves is actually another factor in the greatest. But I suspect they all did it probably about the same number of times. Well, and men and women presumably have to do it in different ways as well. I mean, if we talk about Serena Williams, not only did she have to come back from some injuries, 
She also had to come back from bearing a child. And actually, she won one of her Grand Slams eight weeks pregnant. Um, I mean, that is an incredible thing in itself, Jill, isn't it? I mean, there aren't many women out there having kids and then coming back to the tour, let alone having kids and winning 23 Grand Slams singles. Yeah, I'm um, Kleisters did it as well, came back having a child and, and won the US Open. So I mean, that was Yvonne Gulagong. Yvonne Gulagong, yeah. Um, but but that's that's the point is that they're role models. And when you have those role models, it makes you feel like, okay, yes, I'm capable of doing this. I in your mind, maybe you don't think if you're going to have a kid that you're going to be able to come back. But then as soon as someone does it, then then you think it's possible, and then every and then then you have numerous examples of women coming back and and having a child. But it it is absolutely amazing because it changes you obviously a hundred percent physically and how you perform and having to get back into shape and come back and perform. But I mean that that just shows you the mental toughness of all these athletes being able to come back and going out and performing and believing that they can do it. And I mean, yeah, I think everyone would agree that it's an incredible feat for Serena and all the other women that have come back. And talk about mental toughness and longevity. A little shout out for Alfie Hewitt and Gordon Reed at wheelchair tennis. Unbelievable level of achievement and attainment for for so long Chris and we see it at Wimbledon but that you know they've done it elsewhere too yeah absolutely and I think if you look at wheelchair tennis there is a player who whose achievements I think will get diminished over time perhaps unfairly and that is Esther Verheer the uh, the Dutch woman who has had the most amazing she finished on a 470 match winning streak she won something like 46 major titles singles and doubles the only problem is, and this is also instructive for the greatest of all time debate, is that she won most of her titles in the early years of wheelchair tennis when there wasn't the strength in depth. And people say, well, what happens if someone like, you know, one of the Renshaws or the Doherty's were the greatest tennis player of all time? Well, I don't think they were. But the fact is, if you come too early in the development of the sport and tennis is 149 years old in its in its modern form, um, then actually your achievements will not be as recognised. I don't think you can talk about the greatest of all time in tennis before, let's say, the absolute earliest is the end of the First World War. You know, you've got the two superstars, Suzanne Longlen from France and Bill Tilden from America. Those are the first two you could realistically enter into the debate, although I, I wouldn't put either of them uh, at, at the very top. But yes, I think the wheelchair players are remarkable. And uh, it, it shows you we shouldn't be putting artificial barriers in to assessing who plays tennis to a really high level because, yeah, Reed and Hewitt, um, David Hall, remarkable Australian player. Um, uh, Rick Draney was inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame along with Esther Verheer, um in, in 23. Um, so in a way, there are some fantastic t- stories from wheelchair tennis. And of course, they come with amazing backstories of how these people overcame phenomenal setbacks that would have finished most of us. Indeed. One quick question to round off the pod before uh, we can look ahead to uh, to more debate in the next one. I just wanted to, and it, and it goes a little bit to the mentality um, of the big three um, and also Serena Williams. Who, and I'm just conscious that we've spoken a lot about these four during the, the during the pod. Would they consider themselves to be the best? Do you think? How much do they do they consider their own careers? and their own tennis and consider themselves with their records and their tennis to be the best. 
It's interesting that because I think Federer and Nadal would not even ask themselves that question. And that's why they're so good. I think Serena Williams and Djokovic actually carried on playing because they could see those records. I think they were motivated by the records. Um, so all of them are sufficiently modest or aware of uh, public sensibilities that they wouldn't actually talk about themselves as the greatest. But I think Djokovic and Serena actually played with that motivation. I think Federer and Nadal, Nadal was the most remarkable one because he just wanted to get better. That's all he ever wanted to do. He wanted to get better, to, to be better one day than he was the previous day. And that's why his standards kept going up throughout his career. And who knows what he might bring to the table in 2024. I think all of them at one point, yes, would say, I would say they would consider them one of the best. I think they all have such a deep appreciation for the sport. You know, I, I obviously they love competing, they love playing, but I think they love the sport of tennis so much that I think they recognize their the past greats as well. I, I don't think they don't take that into consideration. I think you see most of them talk about the history of the game, the historical other players that have come before them. And I think having that appreciation, I don't think they would say, yes, I'm the best. I would say they would think I am one of the best being able to be in that category with a lot of the other historical names that we've spoken about already. Let's hold on to those thoughts on success, numbers and substance and come back next week and talk about style and celebrity and then attempt, if we can, to name our very own all-time top fives. I'm sweating already. For now, though, it's it's been a lot of fun already. I'm Seb Lozier. My thanks to Jill Krabus and to Chris Bowers. This has been the ATP Podcast. Come back next week when we put the GOAT debate to bed once and for all. Debatably. <laughs> <laughs>